0: This is the second part of our two-part series on the nine lives of Credit Suisse, which charts the crises and scandals that ultimately brought down Switzerland's second largest bank. If you haven't listened to the first part, you might want to go back and check it out before listening to this one. Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Welcome back. This is the second episode we're doing on the collapse of Credit Suisse, the nine lives of Credit Suisse. A bit like the cat. Last time we went through a series of disasters, a series of disasters that led the bank to lose those lives from the 1970s to the 2020s, and how a very long sequence of misjudgments led to its final demise. So this time we're going to try and make sense of what happened. The whole thing just seems a bit like a slow-motion car crash the more you look at it. Why didn't Credit Suisse, this conservative, stuffy Swiss commercial bank set up by Swiss toffs, ever pull back from the brink?
1: Well, I would say the theme that's running through the whole disaster movie here
0: hmm.
1: is that the people at the top really had no idea what was happening at the work face. The suspicion I have is that this was willful ignorance because they were jolly well rewarded yeah. and had very cushy lives yeah. and they didn't really want to know anything which was
0: at all unpleasant. This is one way I have sort of think about it, was. Credit Suisse was actually a bank that was changing long before it started its Wall Street adventure. You go right back to 1856, 1900, 19-whatever. Then it's basically a commercial bank. It funds Swiss companies' infrastructure projects. They build the St. Gotthard Tunnel, the Swiss railway system. mostly the electricity system is built, fin- financed, I think, by Credit Suisse. And private banking comes along later. It isn't really until the First World War that the Swiss private banking industry shoots up. By that stage, big Swiss banks like... Credit Suisse kind of diversify into that because they think, hey, this is money for old rope. All these foreigners just shove their flight capital into Switzerland and never see it again. We just sort of live off the interest. It's yeah, great, which,
1: which rather makes my point. Yeah, uh, the idea that the people at the top had no idea what was happening as the suitcases yes. came across the border from Italy. Yeah, They either deliberately didn't want to know, or they knew and didn't care.
0: And the secrecy that gives all these foreigners assurance that they won't be dobbed into anyone turns into a formal law in 1934. But even before then, the Swiss government has sort of said for years that they're absolutely determined to support banking secrecy because it's absolutely vital to their system. So six days before World War I breaks out on the 22nd of June, 1914. It's a time when Switzerland is coming under pressure from France over the way its banks are trying to lure in foreign accounts, because the French see this as a tax evasion even then. The economy minister... Which it was. Which it was. Giuseppe Motta issues a statement which assures foreign depositors... Switzerland has not concluded any agreement or arrangement with France, nor with any state, which would grant foreign authorities the right to shine any light into the affairs of Swiss banks. In our country, the secrecy of the business that is concluded by our banks and on the deposits entrusted to them remains guaranteed in the most absolute way. So, Mm. you know, if you're a banker, that pretty much tells you no one's ever going to look yeah.
1: through the door. And you can wave that statement at your yeah. would-be
0: depositor with oh. his 10 billion so bucks. Trust us, no one will ever come. And the real golden age of banking, private banking, is probably, I think, in post-1945, which is at a time of general European expansion, when scarred by wartime memories and the Cold War and all the rest of it, and high taxes... European citizens basically pour money into Swiss banks.
1: But don't forget also the enormous influx of what is shorthand called Nazi gold. Ah, yes, Uh, well, we'll come to that. Well, that happened before 1945.
0: Yes, so they do take in Nazi gold, and they also take in all sorts of other stuff, which gets them into terrible trouble later on. But Chiasse's scandal, one way to look at it is it comes along just as that golden age is sort of ending. You know, yes, was Giasso was was in 1977 that was
1: the town just across the border, the border from with italy the suitcase,
0: where the suitcase the suitcase, suitcase yes yeah, so this is yes. the first scandal this happens at a time when the great post-war economic boom is coming to an end money flows are slowing the low returns on securities in the 1970s is basically making people more aware of their need for you know a bit of fund management as opposed to just sticking your money in a bank account and watching while it depreciates in value. This puts pressure on a model that essentially charges you just for secrecy and gives you crap returns. And indeed, in the late 70s, you see a lot of, there's a lot of talk about the Swiss banking system being in crisis and private banks emerging and being taken over and some are closing. And basically, people are seeking to protect their fortunes from currency depreciation and inflation. So if you look at it in those terms, you know, Kurmeyer, the guy who is behind the Chiasso scandal, isn't just as greedy, although he probably is pretty greedy. He's a man who's responding to adverse business conditions. He's trying to find a way to get the bank moving at a time when it's a bit tough out there. <laughs>
1: well, that's a defense of sorts, I must say. I'd stand up and talk for about five minutes. <laughs> well
0: then, no, I'm not saying he's not guilty of oh, right. guilty of I suppose where I look at it is just that he's he's somebody who's responding in a an illegal way to a difficulty he faces in his little branch, in Chiasso, justifying his existence. So Francis Coppola, who's this expert on financial risk, she argues that the damage was done long before Chiasso. It's really much more to do with the expansion of the private banking business and the kind of culture there.
2: I think it would be a mistake to see the failure of Credit Suisse as being a failure of American-style investment banking, because I think that the problems at Credit Suisse go back far beyond that. And really, they're deeply embedded in the culture of what is often regarded as one of the most stable and honest forms of banking in the world, namely Swiss banking, which if you go back far enough, is actually anything but stable and anything but honest. So Swiss banking has had crises in the early 1900s and in the 1920s and in the 1970s and again in the 1990s. And in between, During the Depression years and going into World War II, it was playing both sides with the Nazis. So it was accepting deposits of stolen gold and money and assets from the Nazis at the same time as it was also accepting gold and assets and money from Jews who'd managed to escape from the Nazis. It was playing both sides. It was holding deposits of Nazi gold which was of course stolen well into the 1980s and possibly and even much longer it finally had to make a settlement to the descendants really of the people from whom the money and gold and assets had been stolen.
0: Basically if you're taking money from all sorts of people not many questions asked and you're protected by a veil of secrecy there's not much incentive to inquire very much about what's going on under the bonnet. Essentially, you're immune from scrutiny. And it's a view shared by Philip Auger, an author and former banker.
3: The Swiss banking law from 1934 leads to a belief that we'll be able to get away with all this. It's very hard to put your finger on it, but I I just think it's the, the belief that everything will be swept under the carpet. No one will ever find out about this. Seen from this
0: perspective, you know, you could argue that the decision to go into investment banking is in a way a move for the traditional bank owners to claw back control over the business, i.e. investment banking is the kind of extension of the commercial bank as opposed to the private bank. Which, of course, might have
1: worked if they had realised that it has very little in common with all the things that they'd been doing in the past. And at the same time, they decided that they were not going to facilitate this money laundering exercise to the extent they had in the past.
0: But it's sort of easier for them to contemplate expanding Wall Street. It's easier to go the kind of route that their new chief executive, Rainer Gut is suggesting rather than trying to figure out why Credit Suisse isn't as competitive as it used to be and how to make it work better. You know, this is just another way of trying to bury the problems they have in their private bank by just doing more of some other stuff.
3: It's a whole round of things stemming back, really, to this, this moment in the early 70s when they decide that the way to compensate for pressure on domestic market share It's not the simple thing, which is to fix that by being more competitive, but to kind of move off into a completely different thing. The most dangerous, difficult to manage business in the financial services industry, investment banking.
0: And the thing is, their timing is actually pretty good. Goot teams up with First Boston to create CSFB, and it's basically the beginning of a decade-long raging boom in the city and on Wall Street. You can argue that this simply stores up problems for later as they expand too fast, move into areas they don't understand and take on all sorts of risks without knowing it. So by the time the 87 crash comes along, Credit Suisse is already in pretty deep and it's finding, as others have done, if you remember our episode about Barclays, it's pretty hard just to slow down. You're either a player or you aren't, as Philip Auger explains.
3: The problem with... European banks who who venture into Wall Street is that once you're in it, it's very, very hard to get out. You're either doing it or you're not. The halfway house is very difficult to pull off.
0: It's one of those horrible things. The more marginal your business is, the higher the price you have to pay for all that so-called talent, which makes it even harder to make any money. And once you've hired all these overpaid mercenaries in suits, you find they're extremely hard to control, as Joseph Ackerman explained.
4: It's not a question of intelligence or a question of uh, being able to read the numbers correctly. The problem is a bit if you are not somewhat grown up in the investment banking culture, it's very difficult to understand and to see through the mechanisms in investment banking. Investment banking is a, it's a fantastic uh, territory, but it's a very complicated one. There's a lot of egos with a lot of people who do not really respect people, who are not peers in that sense and have done a lot of deals uh, successfully. And this is basically where Credit Suisse is.
0: A lot of Swiss bankers in Zurich are trying and failing to manage a bunch of Wall Street masters of the universe. And predictably, the outcome is very patchy. Sometimes the investment bank seems to do well, generally when markets are going up, but it tends to get hit harder than the rest of the street when markets fall. The one consistent theme here is that despite the fact that the people who took Credit Suisse into investment banking, particularly this man Rainer Gutt, came from that background, they never seemed to really be able to manage investment bankers very well. And indeed, you know, one of the things that Joseph Ackerman said was that the way in which they try to control the risks is not to manage, but rather to increase the size of the bank by buying more and more retail and sort of rather dull banking activities <laughs> so they can fogger. absorb the inevitable <laughs> losses. <laughs> and, you know, there's a basic problem, which is Switzerland isn't a huge economy and there are any so many banks to buy. And indeed, they run out of banks and they end up buying an insurance company called Vintatur, which is another sort of version of dumb money. But that doesn't work either because they don't know how to manage that. So they had to sell it on to AXA after about five years. Mm. It's a sort of strategy where they don't ever seem to have got to grips with how to manage it. And their next idea is simply to hand over the keys to the traders and say, well, we don't know how to run this. Why don't you have a go? Maybe you'll be able to run it properly.
1: And of course, they weren't managers, they were traders. And they were traders. And like most traders, they had self-interest at the top of the list, and second is self-interest. And they had no real interest in trying to assess the risk of what they were doing
0: to their employer. Inevitably, I mean, the, the, the acid test really is the performance of the share price, so... The share price under the investment banking era when the Wall Street people are running it goes from an 81 billion market cap peak in 2006 to 30 billion when Brady Dugan goes a decade later.
1: Yes, so the investors at least smelt a rat with this uh, strategy. It's disappointing that the management couldn't or wouldn't do anything
0: about it. So why didn't they just pack it in? There are one or two reasons that were given to us. Joseph Ackerman came up with this idea that it's partly because of the competitive dynamic in Switzerland. After its two main rivals, UBS and SBC, merge in 1997, there's no way Credit Suisse can ever catch up with them in the kind of retail or fund management or private banking business. The only way it can outgrow them is by becoming a bigger investment bank. And this is what he has to say. Credit Suisse had... A-
4: somehow an issue of being the number two in the Swiss market. I remember one of my predecessors at Credit Suisse always said, How long do we want to have the number two number on our back? That played a big role in the culture of the bank because you don't like to be number two all the time. You 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 want to be uh, number one. And and of course when UBS and SBC merge, it was clear for, probably forever that you are number two. If you are number two, you, you you are inclined to take a bit more risks. I mean, that has happened to uh, probably Commerzbank in Germany, to Societe Generale in France and, and other banks. It's always the number one bank can be a little bit more selective than the number two. In my, in my view, this is explained a little bit. Also, the, the cultural issue of this bank. And, you know, what is, is naive in hindsight was, of course, be more risky, a little bit more courageous. Another argument which he gave was that, you know,
0: there's a bit of national pride involved as well. The Swiss quite liked having this big Wall Street investment bank. They thought it made them a bit more interesting and glamorous than they would otherwise have been I fear plausible. I'm afraid that I'm is afraid quite I'm
1: afraid it is, yes. I mean, you know, the shades of Barclays here too. Yeah, yeah. You know, we are big and strong enough to compete with these bank. people. And we are a global bank. Um, and yeah. look what we can do. Yeah. The fact that they were in, incapable of really competing with, the even larger banks in the US, which is essentially what it's about, mm. didn't put them off because yeah. they thought they were smarter than these damn yanks and had to learn the hard way that they probably weren't.
0: Yeah, here's what Joe Ackerman had to say about it.
4: There's even a little bit of propriety in it. You know, if, it's, if a Swiss company or incorporated in Switzerland can uh, uh, conquer the world, it's not something people are immediately against it. I mean, as the financial crisis, there were voices saying, you know, we should change uh, the investment banking activities in, in Swiss banks, but primarily coming from, uh, from the UBS failure disaster. But uh, Credit Suisse was still uh, Swiss in the name. And uh, so it was Credit Suisse. And, and I think it's still considered to be, or was considered to be, a very strong bank, but a little bit more internationally, a little bit more. Agile, a little bit more uh, innovative. I would not say that people were, were very exactly close of that.
0: At this point, we probably ought to look up from the boardroom table at what's going on in the wider world. And there's quite a lot going on. First of all, the sort of geopolitical backdrop completely changes in this industry after the Cold War ends in 1990, 1991. There's suddenly no longer any USSR or Eastern Bloc And Switzerland, like a lot of other places in Europe, is no longer a sort of Cold War neutral bolt hole. Archives across Europe start opening up, whether through the lapse of time or because repressive regimes have gone. And information floods out about Switzerland's dubious role in World War II and after. And it's no coincidence that the first big crisis for Swiss banking comes after the fall of the Berlin Wall, in 1995, when a Canadian businessman called Edgar Bronfman starts the campaign at the World Jewish Congress to get restitution for Jewish families who've had their properties stolen and hidden in Swiss banks during the war.
1: Yeah, it's a sort of underlying dynamic here, which affects the whole industry, Yeah, and not just credit Suisse.
0: Yeah, but Nazi gold and all that is only part of the story. There's also obviously an, another side, which is a kind of you could re- regard as an opportunity, which is globalization and the changing world economy so the opening up of the communist and developing world turns the taps back on in the private bank as all these businessmen oligarchs and so (laughs) forth are keen to protect their newfound fortunes and a whole bunch of new sometimes rather questionable money starts flooding into switzerland (laughs) from overseas (laughs) That's a big opportunity for the private bank, the bit which, of course, they've not really been that bothered about since Chiasso. But it has a downside as well because Switzerland itself is being forced to open up. First, there's the EU and its relationship with them. You know, they think about joining, don't want to, and then try to have their cake and eat it. So want to basically be able to trade and do all sorts of things which are helpful, but keep their own banking regime. And international banking rules, the growing pressure from large developed economies to fight back against tax avoidance and stem capital flight, which takes on a much more determined character after 2008. On the one hand, there's this sort of stuff from the past, which is not great for their reputation. And while there's a kind of great opportunity after 1990, there are also growing risks that the world community is sort of becoming increasingly hostile to the sort of freebooting operation that the Swiss banks run in their secret enclave. And after 9-11, of course, there's a new kind of source of pressure on money laundering in particular, with Washington, the US government, trying very hard to crack down on money laundering as a source of terrorist finance. It leads to the sort of weaponization, really, of the US dollar as a way of enforcing these new rules and essentially threatening banks with the withdrawal of their licences if they don't crack down on their own criminal customers. And that's a real big threat for a bank like Credit Suisse because if it can't do business in dollars, it's essentially out of business.
1: Yes, but they didn't really have an answer to it, did they? Because as time went by, more and more disclosure was forced upon them.
0: Yep. And also, I think they just don't ever really get out in in front of it all. There's an endemic problem with this sort of money laundering stuff as the definition, the ambit of the money laundering regime widens, which is basically there's not much of an incentive if you run a bank to throw open your books and say, look, here are all our crooked customers. Basically, what you want to do, and this seems to be the default setting for almost any bank that discovers it's got a crooked customer is not to say anything, but to quietly try and squeeze Time. those customers back out into the banking system in the hope they'll find someone even less scrupulous to take on the account. Yes. So there's never very, very much openness, right? Uh, they manage them out. I they think. manage them out. Like, well, we're not going to talk about uh, coots. <laughs> but this whole kind of discreet, kind of quiet approach to managing these relationships increasingly is just seen as unacceptable, sinister, borderline criminal, actual criminal. Actually criminal. And,
1: of course, there are new sources of this flight capital all the time from various regimes that are trying to confiscate it or put the bite on citizens. Mm. And, obviously, when you get something like... The Russian increasing militancy of the Russian administration, Mm. then the incentive to get out as much as possible Mm. is increasing all the time. Yeah, and it's not just Russia. I mean, wherever you look, Iran, yeah, all these authoritarian regimes. Yeah, uh, now if you've got money, the last place you want to leave it is at home.
0: So yes, there's an opportunity, but as we've discussed, there's a kind of big risk. And this is what Francis Coppola says about this.
2: I think also that that the story of, of 21st century banking is of cleaning up the mess from two decades of, of under-regulation of banks, really, and a willingness to turn a blind eye to bad and even illegal behaviour. I think now we've, we've come into an age where people are much less tolerant of that from banks, and that's partly as a result of the financial crisis, and also the aftermath of it when all sorts of other things came to light, like rate fixing and things like that, for which people have paid penalties, individuals have gone to prison. And Credit Suisse was very, very much part of that. I mean, rate fixing is one of the things that Credit Suisse has been caught doing. Sanctions breaking, some of of its sanctions breaking, goes back to the 1990s. So in a way, it's taking something that hasn't been cleaned out for a very long time and then suddenly trying to clean it all out in one go. And suddenly you have this pile of litigation and penalties and fines. And the people responsible for that moved on a long while ago. But the bank still has to cough up for its gains like 20 years ago from it.
0: But I think it's also worth saying that just as the Swiss bankers weren't much good at managing Wall Street, they're also pretty, as we've discussed, not great at managing their own private banking operations. And particularly the investment bankers who see these sort of private banking operations as just a source of cheap capital for them to go and invest in various dodgy deals.
1: <laughs> I think it's worth saying that these banks weren't much good at managing the money even in a more conventional way, their yeah. fund management performance is universally dismal. Yeah. Because you know, there is no particular incentive to do anything else. Yeah. It's well known that if you want poor performance from a equity portfolio, you give it to the
0: bank to manage. Anyway, the management of the kind of private banking operation is uniformly poor. And this is what Francis Coppola has to say.
2: It- quite remarkable the ability of senior bank executives in almost any bank to mysteriously not know about extraordinarily lucrative activities that their minions are getting involved in, but somehow manage to take advantage of them in terms of their results. You know, again, Credit Suisse is hardly alone in that. They have a remarkable ability to get caught doing all sorts of things are a, a, like a constant stream of, like I said, tax evasion, money laundering, bribery and all sorts of stuff. And every time they get caught, they stand up and say, oh, we, we're very sorry. We didn't mean to do that. We didn't know about it. And we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. And then it does happen again.
0: Philip Orger, meanwhile, just blames, he says, investment bankers are terrible managing anything because they've got terrible optimism bias, as he calls it.
3: There's certainly a bias to optimism in investment banking which is which is incredibly dangerous and it's where a really strong central risk control function is you know is is absolutely essential you need men and women in gray suits who will st- who will stand up to the bankers and say you know we're not going to do this deal you have to you have to look at this that's where i think culture and values come into it
0: They want to believe the good stuff is true, but they don't want to really spend much time on the bad stuff.
1: I don't think I would quite put it like that. I think it's the difference between what is in the bank's interest and what is in the The trader's interest. And the trader gets rewarded up front and the bank is left holding the bag. And if it all goes wrong, the trader has long gone to somewhere else and there's some poor mutt who has to try and pick the bones out of the wreckage. Yeah,
0: the people who lent the money. The depositors, but whereas in the 1980s and 1990s Credit Suisse sort of rides out these storms, by the 2010s, these failures are becoming existential. The numbers have got much bigger. For one thing, the fines are bigger, the losses are bigger, the private banking operations are bigger and harder to run. And as the scandals pile up, you know, once again going back to the market cap, you know, you see it steadily shrinking. From 58 billion in 2009, it goes to 49 billion in 2013, 34 billion by 2017, and just 11 billion in 2022. Yeah, and,
1: well, somebody saw it coming, didn't they?
0: And that 11 billion of market value is, in the market sense, buffering about 600 billion of banking assets. So these assets had to fall by just over 2% and the whole thing is... You're not comparing
1: like with like there, because the market cap, although it is not entirely divorced from... The free capital that the bank has they are not necessarily moving in step you can have a bank where the market cap is a good deal more mm. than its net assets
0: yeah you can but you rarely do these days and you well, certainly didn't in the case of great suites when it was about no it was about 25 percent of the um, sure of but the i don't value. think
1: i don't think it's a very helpful uh, well i think ratio. it's an index
0: i think it's an index of the perception of market risk
1: well it's a fear
0: index i guess yeah justifiable in this case. Yeah. <laughs> this sort of general air of crisis is why, the in the end, the Credit Suisse kicks out the Wall Street bosses, tries to find people who seem to know how to run large banking operations and who might therefore be able to create the processes to sort the bank out. But the snag is that Credit Suisse has now become such a snake pit that it's not clear that anyone can do it. And the outsiders they do bring in, such as Tiam and Horto end up getting sucked into the sort of toxic culture... Rather than sorting it out, <laughs> <laughs> that just seems a very
1: fair summary, yeah. now, I think. It had got to the point when they arrived that it, I think it was probably past saving because.
0: Yeah, a I bank, think that's probably right.
1: bank lives on its reputation in the end. Yeah. And its reputation was really shot. Yeah. The fall in the share price was a reflection of
0: that. I think by the time these scandals that are Chegos and Greensill come along, which make the bank look incompetent. It's the last straw, as you say. It's one thing being regarded as dodgy, but it's another thing being regarded as just incompetent and yeah. unable to uh, and do your job properly.
1: Serially incompetent. Mm. Uh, and wherever you looked in the organisation, you found areas where you wonder what they were doing. Yeah, And the short answer was they didn't know.
0: Yeah. So by 2022... The real thing seems to be that by then there just isn't that much of any value left. So you've got these liabilities piling up everywhere... The other side of the balance sheet, the assets are dwindling fast. So you've, Credit Suisse has sort of given up on its investment bank. They've set up an incredibly complicated deal, always a good sign, by the way, with a Wall Street banker called Michael Klein, which will kind of spin out the investment banking business into a new thing called First Boston, funnily enough, which will then be floated on the stock market. So that will go, probably a terrible deal for the, for the remaining shareholders of Credit Suisse. The private bank is in crisis, largely because of the multiple attacks on bank secrecy, suddenly taking out an account with Credit Suisse more of a liability than your benefit if you're a billionaire, especially a shady one, of course. Assets under management are falling. They've fallen by 15% in the two years up to 2022, which is always a, a bad sign when money starts draining out of the bank. And the rest is just this boring asset management business and a not very large by international standards retail bank. So the thing is gently imploding. And they're not so gently. Well, they're not so gently because as F. Scott Fitzgerald, they're going bust slowly and then and all then at s- once. <laughs> <And> suddenly. <laughs> yes, but nobody really wants to take on all these liabilities anymore. And here's what Philip Auger has to say about it.
3: We've got the empirical evidence here. We know that actually in the end there were no other buyers around. BlackRock had a look, but, but there were no other buyers around. The last twist in the
1: story is the takeover for Nuppance, really, by UBS. Three billion. But in the context of the banks, this is a tiny sum of money. Yep. They not only essentially give the bank to UBS, they also diddle the bondholders, by making a payment to the shareholders to accept this deal yep. and wiping out the bondholders. Yep. so well, all- Just
0: a certain class of bonds, not the whatever they called AT1. They're a sort of sandwich subordinated uh, debt. Sure,
1: but there is no question that they are further but up they, the food uh, chain than the, yes, uh, yes, than yes, the ordinary yes, yes. shares, agreed. Agreed. which are clearly at the bottom of it. And so this story is by no means over yet. The bondholders have had a serious sense of humour failure over this and legal action will follow. And we will find out whether the rules allow the Swiss government essentially to make things up as they went along or whether some more international logic will prevail and force the holders or force the owners of UBS to make, pay some compensation to the defaulted bonds?
0: Well the numbers there really are quite astonishing at the end. UBS which was forced to buy Credit Suisse didn't want to and is probably going to sack most of the workers of Credit Suisse as a result of the takeover paid 3 billion Swiss francs which is around 3 billion dollars for the equity. Now that represented what's called 34 billion of bad will so they bought the book value of Credit Suisse for thirty-four billion dollars less than its what was deemed to be its true worth, which means that in theory, that's just a straight profit to them. Yeah, um, if they could realize, and, and, and the they've book said, value. and they've said what they've said is that they think they will take a seventeen billion dollar hit from the various liabilities they inherit with Credit Suisse. So they've ended up, in theory, being given the gift of seventeen billion. But if you look at the share price of UBS, it hasn't gone up at all. <laughs> so the market, even the market doesn't think there's necessarily any real bad will there. They think it's probably, it was worth about three billion when they bought it.
1: Somebody is looking a gift horse in the mouth, then.
0: I suppose the other point to make just before we wrap up is where this also leaves the whole Swiss banking system, because You know, you go back to 2008, UBS, which got itself into a terrible pickle in the financial crisis, had to be rescued, could be rescued, because it was not the whole banking system. But now, despite all the regulatory reforms that were brought in, Credit Suisse was not restructured in the way that we were told would be possible. It has not been allowed to fail either. It's been merged into just one giant Banking organization which has assets now multiple of Swiss GDP. And were there to be another financial crisis or confidence crisis of the sort that's just occurred, it's very hard to see how the Swiss state could possibly bail out UBS.
1: Yes, they might have to start printing money, which of course would be like uh, it's against their religion. But uh, you're quite right, it's far too big an institution for a country the size of Switzerland. So I think probably all they can hope is that the next crisis is sufficiently far away for them to have broken up the monolith at the moment into more manageable chunks, some of which would not go bust in a crisis.
0: Well, and also we have to hope that they're better at running (laughs) this enormous organisation than their chums that Credit Suisse were in the past.
1: That was a Long Time in Finance. Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast
3: app as that will help new listeners find us.